0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Indubitably.
1: We hope you had a fantastic week because we are probably about to ruin your mood. Oh, no. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about campaign finance reform and how amazing our democracy is.
0: I can sense a little bit of sarcasm in your voice. Um, Josh, do you have any like
1: personal experience with this type of thing? Oh, yeah. You betcha. I think we've mentioned before that in a past life, I I ran political campaigns. I don't like to admit it very often, but for this particular episode, I think that might be useful to know.
0: I've done no such thing. So I come into this with a clear conscience and no stress.
1: (laughs) That definitely makes you the better of the two of us. (laughs) I have spent so much time just bothering candidates, asking them, if they've made their fundraising calls or not. They make their own fundraising calls? If you want big money from the big donors, you need the candidate to be calling them directly. So they feel important.
0: Mm, I was envisioning a bank of phones at a like folding table and just calling random people. But I guess they leave that for like the interns and volunteers, right?
1: Yeah. This is democracy. Do you think the average person actually has a say in the system?
0: Well, that's what we've been led to believe.
1: <laughs> They're the ones that get the calls from the interns, and the people that are providing the max donations are the ones that get the call from the candidate themselves. All
0: U.S. citizens are equal, but some are more equal than others.
1: To the tune of $5,400 per election cycle.
0: Wow, you've, you've even got the specific numbers. I have no idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which was just bumped recently. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that as we go throughout the episode. And to to be clear, I obviously sound a little bit jaded right off the bat. I don't think that calling people and asking for support is necessarily problematic in the systems where there are donation limits that keep things reasonable and ensure an equitable voice for everyone. But the controversy and the problem comes in with bigger campaigns when we start to have independent expenditures involved. It sounds
0: like things are going to get pretty complicated. So I guess we'll talk about that and a whole lot more as we dive into the realm of campaign finance.
1: And away we go. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to indubitably now. Extra, extra. Welcome to this episode of Do You Have Enough Money to Participate in Democracy? Spoiler alert, the answer is probably no. But before we eliminate all faith in the system, let's go ahead and go through an outline of what we'll be covering in today's episode. We're going to start by giving you a sense of scale on what election spending looks like, breaking down things like PACs, committees, super PACs, Then we'll move on to exactly how we got to the state of affairs by covering a couple of different Supreme Court cases. One, Buckley versus Vallejo, that decided that spending money is the equivalent of exercising free speech. And number two, Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Committee, which designated corporations as individuals. We'll move on to talk about some of the problems that have stemmed from these decisions and then finish with some potential maybe realistic, maybe not realistic solutions to everything that we cover previously.
0: This is quite an ambitious agenda.
1: (laughs) I have faith in us.
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess I do too. More faith than I have in the democratic system.
1: If we just spend enough money, we'll be able to say all the things that we want to say.
0: I like that idea.
1: I don't, I don't have that much money. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's why we need people to listen so we can start getting uh, funding.
1: Mm. And then we can donate to our favorite candidates. We talk a lot about politicians we don't like. We don't talk super often about politicians we do. I swear there's a couple I'm, I'm a fan of.
0: I've donated money to candidates before. Ooh, like who? I think I gave money to Beto O'Rourke. In Texas? I think I did. All right. <laughs> because he was going against Ted Cruz, right?
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> We're about to talk about a sense of scale of what election spending looks like. And let's be honest here, too. You're in the fortunate situation where you can't afford to donate anything, which mm-hmm. already, you know, puts you in a pretty good spot. How much did you donate to Beto O'Rourke? Uh,
0: he's not the only candidate I've donated to for the record. I've donated mm-hmm. to a few other people that were in key uh, uh, Senate seats that were looking like they were going to flip. And they did in Georgia, which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. I generally donate about 15 or 20 bucks per candidate when I do that.
1: Okay. So let's, let's just for our listeners, I just want them to keep that in mind, $20 donation. And again, that, that's uh, the vast majority of people can't afford to donate anything or are just disillusioned to the point that they don't feel like donating anything, which is also fair.
0: I've probably, and I would say that I'm one of the more politically active people I know. Um, I've probably donated less than $200 total over the course of my political donation history.
1: We're doing our service through educating the public through this podcast. We don't need to give money. So, okay, let's keep that in mind though, $200 and and compare that to the numbers that we're about to throw out. So with the scale of election spending, there's a couple of things we should define first. Um, One of the ways that money can be spent on a campaign, the most common way is a campaign committee. This is the like Trump for president committee, the official committee of a candidate, or the We swear Biden isn't too old to be president 2020. I think that's what his official committee was called. May as well have been. (laughs) (laughs) And contributions to these committees are limited for individuals to $2,900 per election. That would be per the primary election and then the general election. Uh, And then if you are a PAC, a political action committee, the contributions are limited to $5,000 per year. So that is to a candidate's official committee.
0: And in 2020, federal elections committees raised one hundred and eighty eight million dollars, five million of which came from individual contributions. So the Kellys of the world donating 20 bucks here or the I don't know. I don't know anyone who's got twenty nine hundred dollars just sitting around for any part of a major contribution. But
1: I know some people Bill
0: Gates is of the world. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, Those are the people that I make my candidates sit on the phone with. To shed a little bit of light on that, actually, a lot of the individuals who are donating that max $2,900 are typically business owners or people that have business interests in a particular district.
0: People who can probably also afford a country club membership.
1: Mm-hmm. It is $2,900. And there's certainly people out there who see this as an ideological investment. But the vast majority of people that are donating these amounts, it's because they now have ex-mayor or ex-state senator or ex-county supervisor, they've got their cell phone number now saved and they have direct access to this person. Should a vote on zoning or tax rates or government contracts ever come up?
0: That being said, it's still a pretty small number relative to that $188 million total. And then the... Majority of the funding comes from political action committees, and that was $181 million in 2020.
1: So that has $200 from Kelly, five, $5 million from individuals in total, and $181 million for political action committees.
0: I guess maybe my $15 or so dollars to any given candidate probably didn't do a whole lot.
1: Mm, It does seem like you're being very quickly outpaced, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. So why bother? (laughs) Oh, the futility of participating in the democratic
1: process as a poor individual. It's about to get worse. So these are the official, again, campaign committees. But moving on from these, we also can look to independent expenditures. Um, And these come with cool names like the Senate Leadership Fund or the America First Action Group. Uh, which supported Donald Trump in the last election, or the American Bridge Twenty First Century Group? I'm not sure what this has to do with Biden, but they supported Biden in the last election. I looked them up just to see
0: if the name had anything to do with actual bridges, and it does not. So I immediately lost interest.
1: <laughs> well, he he did have his infrastructure plan to build a bunch of bridges and roads and stuff. Maybe that's what they were getting at. Perhaps. And. The big thing here is under independent expenditures. So this is expenditures that do not go directly to the campaign committees, but they spend money on messaging, commercials, mailers, et cetera, indirectly in support of any particular candidate that they're trying to get elected. We have super PACs. It's like a normal PAC, but with a cape.
0: Oh, I was thinking it was just like a giant bucket of soda. (laughs) <laughs> a super-sized political action committee.
1: No, this is when you take a political action committee and they run into the phone booth and then they come out of it as a super PAC. So a super PAC, more seriously, is an independent expenditure-only political committee. So again, they, they do not donate to the official campaign committee of a candidate, but they are committees that may receive unlimited contributions. That's a big deal. Unlimited as opposed to the limits that we discussed earlier of the $2,900 or the $5,000. And they can receive those contributions from individuals, corporations, labor unions, and other PACs, the regular mini PACs, for the purpose of financing independent expenditures and other independent political activity.
0: I'm starting to feel an ominous current
1: of uh oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of ominous, these are also uh, referred to as receiving dark money which is basically means that these campaign committees do not have to disclose their donors, which is also a big difference between them and an official campaign committee. So with this dark money in the tower of Mordor, being able to be spent with unlimited contributions, guess how much independent expenditures spent in 2020?
0: I legitimately do not know. And I'm going to make a guess and I'm afraid you're just going to laugh at me. But if these are donors that don't have to disclose and the little packs can donate to them, I'm going to guess that it's probably like double what the packs raised. So that would be what, like 350 million or something like that.
1: The, well, that would be double. So your math is pretty correct, but <laughs> the uh, super packs in 2020 spent, over $2 billion on federal campaigns and they raised over 3 billion. So they didn't even spend all the money that they had, but they were in the billions, not millions. If my math is correct, that is over 10 times as much as the baby packs. How much of a Jeff Bezos is that though? Oh, not many of them.
0: (laughs) It's like a quarter of a Jeff Bezos or something. I don't (laughs) even
1: know how much he's worth. He's worth a lot of presidents.
0: Uh, And he probably has bought and paid for some of them himself.
1: Yeah, for sure. And Congress people. So to give you a couple of specific super PACs, we mentioned the America First Action Group uh, supporting Trump, which spent $133 million. The second largest super PAC that was supporting Donald Trump was the Preserve America PAC, that spent $102 million. So right off the bat, compared to $188 million that was spent by every mini pack for every federal campaign in 2020, these have already surpassed that. Just the top two super PACs, just for Trump.
0: That explains a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. On Biden's side, we have the American Bridge 21st Century, which we mentioned, who spent $59 million And the Independence USA PAC, which spent $56 So good for Biden. He's coming in with a lot less money in terms of super PAC expenditures, but managed to pull off the win.
0: That's because all of his donors are shopping at Whole Foods, so they don't really have much extra money to donate to
1: to super PACs. That's because all of Biden's supporters are, look, folks. (laughs) Anybody that gets referred to as folks is not donating millions of dollars to a campaign. No. But look at Biden. He's so relatable.
0: Yes, he likes ice cream and trains.
1: I mean, I also like ice cream.
0: Exactly. I wasn't being sarcastic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so overall, in the 2020 election, of that 2 billion dollars that was spent, conservative candidates received $1.2 billion in support, and liberal candidates received $900 million. Dollars in support. So conservative candidates did receive a substantially larger piece of that pie.
0: Too bad they lost a lot of elections that year.
1: But didn't lose as badly as people were predicting. Mm, That's true. So it does make you wonder if how much of an impact this money might have had, given how wrong some of the pundits were.
0: With all of that money being involved, it really leads to the next question, which is how did we get here? We've commonly understood that one person gets one vote, and that is a way for democracy to be equitable. But if this is how people are also participating in the process, then that's obviously not the case that people are getting to be involved equally.
1: Yeah, your $20 compared to the overall $1.2 billion spent on conservative candidates, for example, probably doesn't make you feel as though you've got an equivalent voice in this democracy.
0: Yeah, but I'm used to doing things on a very minor scale that don't have any payoff. I mean, I still sort my recycling.
1: And to be clear, too, these dollar amounts do have a direct impact on the results of an election. Right? It's not necessarily guaranteed, but if you were to track money spent on elections versus results, there's for sure a correlation. And just to give sort of an anecdote, I suppose especially for smaller races, presidential campaigns, big Senate races, it might be a little different. But congressional campaigns matter a lot, especially with the House being so closely divided. And these are much smaller races in terms of scale. And, and some <laughs> shenanigans can happen in, in races this size. So I know this isn't a federal election, but in a county supervisor race that I was, we'll say, just say, aware of which is meant to be a nonpartisan race. Candidates on the ballots don't have to claim themselves as part of the Democratic or Republican Party. There was one particular candidate who had enough money that they sent out to traditionally Democratic voters that they were a Democratic candidate. And then they sent out to traditionally Republican voters that they were a Republican candidate.
0: So they lied?
1: Yep. But here's the thing. Because they were able to outspend their opponent, Who's going to call them out on it?
0: Anybody who's interested in an equitable election.
1: And here's the problem. This is where I get really jaded. But the number of people who are interested enough in an election to do research and actually find out who the best candidate is, is so small that they will always be dwarfed by the number of votes for people who just say, I'm a Democrat, I'm going to vote for the Democrat or I'm a Republican. I'm going to vote for the Republican. I don't really care who they are. I'm just I'm just going with party lines. And so this candidate, by just telling Democratic voters that they were a Democrat, telling Republican voters they were Republican, basically ensured that they got the vast majority of the vote. The only people who had a chance to stop this were a people who did their research. But those people don't have a forum in which to educate the rest of the voters or their opponent, who very clearly knew that they were lying. but wasn't aware of these mailers being sent out until it was too late and didn't have the funds to print and mail material of their own calling this other person out on the lie. So they completely got away with it. Starting to see a lot of problems with this entire system. <laughs> right. And obviously this is an extreme example in a, in a smaller race, but to varying degrees, It does illustrate the impact that money can have. If you want to say something about an opponent, you need to have the funds to get that message out to as many people as possible. And whatever you say, whether it's true or not, if they don't have the funds to respond to it, your message is the message that's going to be prevailing.
0: Clearly, the American system has been set up so that money is a fundamental part of the election process. But how did it get to the point where so much money was involved? I mean, we can send um, a blast email out for pretty cheap.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, this started with, as we mentioned in the outline earlier, the Supreme Court case of Buckley versus Vallejo. And this case created the system that we described earlier in terms of where spending limits and contribution limits are or are not placed, and also where disclosures of who is making these contributions does or does not have to happen.
0: What is the basis for this?
1: Yeah, it does seem like a really strange system, right? Here's a place where there are some limits. You can only spend $2,900. Here's a place where you can spend whatever you want. Here's a place where you have to disclose your identity as a contributor. Here's a place where you don't. Um, fundamentally, what Buckley versus Vallejo decided was that spending money is the equivalent to exercising free speech.
0: Is this what they mean by money talks?
1: Yeah, quite literally, I think.
0: <laughs> it is interesting because money is a physical, well, a physical object in some cases, but an idea in other cases. So I can see where there might be some value to the idea that it is a expression in some cases, like art is expression.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if you put your a significant portions of your life into earning it, it would seem weird if the government was like, mm, but you can't spend it here. Especially when that here is literally to put an opinion that you have out into the world.
0: The Supreme Court found that statutory limits on campaign contributions were not violations of the First Amendment freedom of expression. But that statutory limits on campaign spending were unconstitutional.
1: This seems really strange to me. The fact that they say in this particular instance, we're not able to limit spending. So, if Obama, for example, wants to spend all of his money on himself, he can do that. Or in a super PAC, if you want to say something about a particular candidate, you can spend all of your money into the millions and literally billions of dollars. That's okay. But if I want to donate to Obama's campaign committee in order for him to make these statements about himself, I'm limited in the amount that I can give. It, it, it doesn't seem consistent to me. Either money is free speech and I can use it how I see fit, or money is not free speech and it can be restricted.
0: Money is free speech for campaigns to spend on, but it's not free speech for citizens to donate. It's
1: simple. If they're donating to a PAC, but if it's a super PAC, it is okay for them to do it again. It's very complicated. I think that in this case, the Supreme Court had to balance out the idea of being consistent and I suppose pure with their ideology of spending equaling free speech with upholding The principles of democracy?
0: One justification for the idea of individual campaign contribution limits might be on the basis of equality, perhaps, in that if no one person can donate a substantial amount more than another person, if it's capped at a moderate level, then it somehow equalizes the amount of speech that each person has. Although I'm never going to spend $2,900 at one time for any candidate, it's not unreasonable to assume that if I really cared about something, I could at some point do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or maybe a collection of you know, two or three people together spending a couple hundred bucks each doesn't get completely overshadowed by millions of dollars being spent in opposition to them on a campaign. A system that does put limits and keeps everybody's voice equitable definitely defends the concepts and principles of democracy better, but it comes into conflict with this idea of free speech. So I guess this was the Supreme Court's way of trying to balance those two things out.
0: But it's an inadequate measure because there will be some people who can never donate any money to a campaign, not because they don't care but because they just don't have access to the same resources as people who can. And in that case, is their ability to have free expression obliterated if we're considering speech to include money?
1: But that's why I guess there has to be a balance. Um, If you were to just say nobody can donate ever, then you're completely restricting free speech. For, For people that might want a little bit more background into the Supreme Court, we do have a very recent episode on amending the Supreme Court, and one of the things that we talk about is different judicial philosophies, and I think that this might be a good example. If you check that episode out, this might be a good example where depending on your take on what the Supreme Court's role is, or depending on the particular justices who are, who are involved in this decision, they might see themselves as A, interpreting the Constitution in a pure fashion. This is how it was written. This is what it means. Therefore. It says free speech, no limit on free speech done or justices who might see their job as protecting the well-being of society at large, in which case they might lean towards we put limits on spending to ensure that the democratic system remains functional.
0: That episode is just so relevant all the time right now.
1: Mm -hmm. But that might be that might be an explanation for where you get this kind of hodgepodge negotiated. It would be fascinating to me to see. You've got the nine Supreme Court justices be like, all right, well, we'll give you super PACs if you agree to a $2,700 limit on campaign contributions. <laughs> I just see the nine of them at the table offer and counter offering each other to come to a balance that they all like.
0: My faith is diminishing even more in the system. every time. <laughs> every time you come up with these ideas that sound wild, but then end up actually kind
1: of sounding plausible. Otherwise, it just it's, it is very difficult. Uh, I guess there are very, very fine ideological differences between a person spending money on support of themselves, i.e. Trump spending his own money to get himself elected versus Kelly spending her money to get Beto O'Rourke elected. It, it does seem intuitively that there's a difference there. But again, at the same time, free speech is free speech. Anyway, the the point here is we have this muddled system that allows for certainly particular individuals to have a massive say in our democracy and other individuals, not so much based on the amount that they're able or willing to contribute financially. And at its core, the justification behind that in Buckley versus Vallejo is the idea that expenditure of your money equals the exercising I kind of like exorcism better the exorcism of your free speech I know it's not the right word but it sounds cool that's all that matters is that it sounds cool I think by now our listeners know that I'm a big fan of just making up words
0: Mm -hmm. that leads us to a new element in the whole political funding landscape And that is the idea of corporations being considered individuals who therefore have the same access to exorcism of free speech by donating to political entities.
1: See, it's catching on. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not just citizens who have been granted the ability to spend as an expression of free speech, but also corporations. And this happened in the 2010 Supreme Court. Again, case Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Committee, or, as the cool kids call it, the FEC.
0: The basis for this decision is that in the First Amendment, the Freedom of Press Clause guarantees individual speakers and associations of speakers, like media organizations, newspapers, businesses, the the same access to expression of free speech. And the identity of the speaker cannot be the basis for restricting the speech either whether it's the identity of the individual or of the association, as in, if I run one newspaper, my rival also will get to say what they want as well. So if a corporation is an association of individuals, like the business side of a publication is, is an association of individuals, then it too has those same guarantees of free speech. And as we already discussed in Buckley v. Vallejo, money equals speech, spending money equals the dissemination of speech, Limiting a corporation is then a violation of the First Amendment. And that is how a corporation can then express its political advocacy and there can be no legal diminishment of that. So corporations are people.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Prior to this, citizens or unions as an association of citizens, like you point out, could spend money, but corporations could not. And so Citizens United, the group that sued for this right. Eliminated the distinction between an association like a union and an association like a corporation. I kind of hate this idea (laughs) intuitively, but at the same time, to stop a corporation, which if it is an association of people from spending all of the money that they have, is sort of just punishing them for being successful.
0: Wow, you sound like everybody over the age of 70 right now.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to be fair here. If spending money is free speech, if you buy that, then it doesn't make sense to put a limit on it just because one person has more money than somebody else. I mean, let's look at a lot of the rights that we have in society, and the people with more money are able to exercise those rights more often. That's just a fact of America.
0: Well, let's look at the basis of this decision being on the freedom of press clause itself. The idea of somebody working for a newspaper already gives them more access to freedom of speech than an average citizen. They can write whatever they want when they're publishing and they get more visibility to their ideas than I do on my private Twitter.
1: I follow your private Twitter.
0: Yeah. I don't see anything of value there, but the point is I don't own a newspaper and I don't have the ability to deliver my opinion onto people's doorsteps that they pay me for every single day.
1: As a debate podcast, though, I do feel as though we should be pointing out when we are engaging in logical fallacies as well. And this is very much just an appeal to tradition, right? Like The fact that our country is screwed up and provides disproportionate access to the various supposedly fundamental rights based on the amount of money one person has, uh, since that happens everywhere else, we might as well do it here too. Hmm, Definitely not the best argument. What
0: I'm hearing is that we should all get our own newspaper.
1: Yeah, that's that's your Twitter. Oh, <laughs> well, no, it's not good. Um, but uh, assuming that we do have a system based on capitalism and that we can buy access to various things, whether it's healthcare, right to life or media time, you know, right to free speech, et cetera, et cetera. This ruling of Citizens United does seem consistent with the rest of this infrastructure that we have built up.
0: Now, taking that all into consideration, how did the law affect things? How much do corporations actually contribute to the political process now?
1: So actually, I I think that the answer to that might be a smaller number than you would expect. The percentage of donations coming from corporations in 2018 was actually less than 5%.
0: And that is to all types of political contributions or specifically super PACs?
1: Well, again, remember for PACs and campaign committees, there are still the limitations in place. So, these, this is for super PACs specifically, where the, camp, uh, where the contributions are unlimited. But I think after Citizens United, people feared just an influx of corporate money taking over the system completely. And so, the fact that the contributions come in at under 5% of overall contributions as compared to just wealthy individuals was a little bit of a surprise.
0: Yeah, I would assume that to bring up the devil himself once again, Jeff Bezos running a corporation like the one that he does would be spending a lot of money to basically buy an election, but it sounds like that's not what actually has been happening.
1: Well, and that's a point here. So so let's talk for a second about that 5% and why it might be the case. One thing that you point out is there are rich individuals who are donating as individuals that very obviously still represent corporate interest. So the fact that Amazon, for example, might not be donating to a particular candidate, if Jeff Bezos, for our example here, was, let's be real, that's still functionally Amazon's interests being expressed through this donation of money. So it's hard to say. With that 5% of direct corporate contribution, what the actual number of expression of corporate interest would be at.
0: Well, that raises another question as well. If corporations are made up of people and people can individually donate money and the corporations are also donating money, isn't that double speech?
1: hmm <laughs> All the speech. You get to say it. Would that be like twice as loud or would you say it twice? Both. That's quadruple speech.
0: Oh, uh, I forgot how math works.
1: (laughs) So another another reason that the percentage here would be so low actually comes from lobbying, which is a whole episode in and of itself. But if we're looking at 2018, for an example, federal lobbying spending reached an eight-year high, totaling 3.4 billion dollars. So even more than what we talked about with Super PAC spending. Lobbying comes in at a pretty astronomical number. And this is as corporations and interest groups lobby Congress and the federal government on policies that directly affect their bottom line. So instead of indirectly getting a candidate elected who may or may not support their interests, they spend their money on particular bills and particular policies that they know are going to affect them. So, for example, the pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of america pharma spent 59 million dollars opposing a 2017 ohio ballot measure that would have required state programs to purchase prescription drugs at prices that are no higher than what the us department of veteran affairs pays so obviously this would present a pretty big hit in their profit margins so johnson and johnson spent 3.3 million Amgen spent 3.2 million. Pfizer spent 3.2 million. All the people who we're supposed to trust with our coronavirus vaccines, by the way, these were the top three contributors uh, to the efforts to defeat that particular bill.
0: Well, now I can't trust big pharma, so who can I trust? <laughs> he,
1: this is a this I know we like to throw back to episodes that we've already done. Now that we're a well-established podcast with mm-hmm. almost 30 episodes. Our first episode actually was on mandatory vaccination. And one of the arguments against mandatory vaccination is a very legitimate distrust of some of these corporations who are the ones that we're supposed to be putting our lives in the hands of.
0: And obviously, they will spend a lot of money to avoid losing even more money. So it's easy to see where their interests actually lie.
1: (laughs) The point of this small rant on lobbying is to give potential justification for why corporate spending in super PACs and campaigns to candidates might have been so small. And then the last reason I think that is interesting is just strategically, it can be dangerous to take corporate dollars. I'm sure that we've all heard politicians come out and say things like, I haven't taken any special interest money. I'm funding my campaign purely on the Kellys of the world, $20 at a time. And that proves that I'm a legitimate above board candidate.
0: And it does seem kind of silly that they wouldn't take money, but there's a few reasons why it's probably in their interest not to. Being a candidate who's free of any obligation to corporations really makes them responsive to their voters in a way that other candidates may not be. And even if they don't always prove to be successful, at least people can have faith in them carrying out the interests of the people who send them to those political
1: offices. Absolutely. So we've kind of covered a sense of scale, how much money flows into political campaigns. We've covered the idea that the spending of that money is, according to the Supreme Court at least, the exorcism of free speech. And we've also covered this subcategory of donors, uh, corporations, and why they're given the rights of individuals. So what are the problems, besides just the principled ideas that we've covered, the idea of disproportionality and democracy, what are the problems with money's influence inside of our democratic system?
0: That's the very thing that I think we're most afraid of, is that if candidates are responsive to their largest donors and their largest donors are therefore corporations because they have the most money, then they're going to carry
1: out the interests of corporations above the interests of average people. This, you could talk about this theoretically, but also if you, if you think about it, a corporation of that size does not make a decision that loses them money. So if they are spending millions of dollars, for example, if Johnson and Johnson spends three point three million dollars to combat this ballot measure in Ohio that caps drug prices, they have to, at the very least, think that that's going to make them more than three point three million dollars in profits in the long run.
0: It does seem kind of impossible to fathom when you don't have three point three million dollars to spend on these types of things.
1: Well, but the me, amount of money. Let that me tell you all about it.
0: Okay. You're the 1%, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But clearly they're talking about a substantial multiples of that amount of money are at stake if they don't get their position preserved.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think to sort of remove the jaded lens at least a little bit, we're not necessarily suggesting that there's a quid pro quo between corporations or individuals that donate. And the candidates, it is possible that these corporations are just backing the candidate that already believes the thing that they want in office. So, for example, if you are a developer and there is a candidate that is pro-development and you give them money to ensure that they get into office, it's a little bit of a chicken or an egg sort of dilemma here. But it's not necessarily that because you gave them money, now they're voting the way you want them to vote. It might be that, hey, they already have a tendency to vote that way. And therefore, you are giving them money. And then when they win, they're going to continue with the mindset that they had, anyways. So, not necessarily quid pro quo, which makes it a little bit more legitimate.
0: I guess. But there are also people who mention that when there is money at stake in the political arena, maybe it's not. A bribe, maybe it's not necessarily being beholden to corporate interests, but it's been phrased as lean towards the green.
1: Mm, you know, mm-hmm. maybe
0: don't do anything that would compromise your relationship with corporate interest.
1: Does that mean that these candidates are environmentally friendly?
0: Oh, if only.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. It certainly is disheartening to think that on, on a similar level to advertising, right? When something's done on a massive scale, a company like whatever, Nike, knows that if we spend X amount of dollars on advertising, more than likely we are going to make within a certain range of profit based on that money that we've spent. And in a similar vein, this lobbying or these campaign contributions, when they happen at this scale, these companies have a sense of Over time, it might not be this one particular candidate, it might not be this one particular election, but certainly over time, if we spend this money, we will certainly be making profit on it. And the idea that our democracy can be gamed in that way is for sure troubling. Again,
0: my faith in the system, which I thought was already in the single digits before coming into this, it's not doing too well right now.
1: We did tell everybody at the beginning of the episode, we hope they're having a real good week because we're about to ruin it.
0: What does it say that I've been having a terrible week and this is
1: probably the best part of it right now? Oh, good. That way we go over it now. So it can't get any lower <laughs> unless you're in the 1%, in which case uh, this episode is probably balls for you. If you're in the 1%, every week is your best week. Also, if you're in the 1% and you're listening to this podcast, email us. At indubitablypodcast at gmail.com, and we'll let you know how you can give us money.
0: If you can't remember that email address, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at indubitablypod.
1: All right. So let's say that corporations are able to get their interests upheld by politicians post contribution. Why is that necessarily a problem? Like, where do corporate interests and public interests come into conflict?
0: A really big debate that's happening currently where it does pit average people against corporations is minimum wage rates and how a lot of local areas are looking at raising the minimum wage, but federally it hasn't been raised in over a decade, I'm sure, probably longer. Those are the types of things where business interests seem to be carrying the 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 motion essentially. And people are not getting their fair share.
1: I think that's a great example because also just in terms of corporations being able to predict what kind of economic impact a certain policy would have, it's really easy for them to plot out if minimum wage raises by X, we will lose X amount of money. And therefore, it makes sense for us to either donate or lobby with this budget here to prevent us from having to lose this amount of money moving forward if the minimum wage were to increase.
0: And that calculus can be applied to a lot of different areas of worker rights. Any additional benefits, any additional overtime guarantees, the right to unionize even, all of those things have a financial impact on corporate bottom line.
1: And another big one is uh, environmental protection, policies about pollution, etc., there's also examples of anything from government bailouts, predatory lending in the financial industry, our tax structures. There, there are so many aspects of society where corporate interests and public interests might come into conflict. And, and not just corporate interests, but also potentially just the interests of the wealthy versus the interests of the masses that also come into conflict. and. If in every one of those instances, the ability to participate in the democratic system is going to be defined by the amount of money that you are able to contribute into that system, certainly the laws that we have are going to be skewed in favor of one of those two groups over another. I'll give you two guesses on which group it's skewed in the favor of.
0: Well, I would imagine it's the groups that pay less taxes than I do. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh the irony and i mean that that is a really good example of the system like how do we get to a point in which that's the case if not through lobbying and or campaign contributions and just participation at a higher level as opposed to one person one vote by these groups to ensure that Yeah. I pay more taxes than somebody that makes, uh, I don't even know the number, like a million times, literally a million times more than me. It sounds crazy to say that, but a million times more than me. What would you do with that much money? Not pay taxes.
0: God, if you paid taxes, you wouldn't even miss it. You know,
1: that's, that's the real joke of the whole thing. They wouldn't even miss it. All right. Now I'm ruining my own day. (laughs) 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 See, here's an interesting take though. And it, and It's, is there even a problem here? Because if we have the same number of these rich individual donors on both sides of the political spectrum, would it just balance out and kind of cancel itself out between the parties? And I know earlier we said that the conservatives in 2020 at least were receiving 1.2 billion at a federal level the liberal side of the political spectrum was receiving 900 million there's a substantial difference there but it's not astronomical in 2012 to give another example obama was able to raise 985 million dollars and romney was able to raise 992 million that is pretty close to each other and this is a combination of their candidate committee their party contributions, and the primary super PAC for each candidate.
0: There is a problem with this because a third party could never reach the same level of fundraising as two established parties. There's no way to edge into this type of conflict when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars between the two and another party. Poor Andrew Yang, he's trying. Like He's (laughs) never going to raise enough money to compete with either of these parties.
1: Oh, but at the same time, let's say we took money away and we did have a one person, one vote, one amount of free speech system, the third parties wouldn't be able to compete in that either. They're just smaller on every scale. But they would have a better chance. Yeah, potentially. We might see a better
0: distribution of political ideologies and legislative bodies if that happened, more like you see in parliamentary systems, even if the presidential elections are more highly dominated by the two parties. I could see a case where, you know, certain ideologies do better in a state than they would nationally.
1: I could see that. And I we've talked about this another potential episode, but in my opinion the two-party system that we have is potentially the worst aspect of the country and the the most dangerous aspect of this entire country. So anything that breaks up the two-party system, I'm a fan of. But given that we have a predominantly two party system and even with these massive donations and these massive dollar amounts it ends up relatively even is that a suggestion that this doesn't matter that much it's not that big of a problem what's that quote from one of the godzilla
0: movies like let them fight
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's like leave, leave me out of it if my contributions don't matter i'll let you know microsoft and amazon and any other company based in seattle give money to these political actors and I'll just stay out of it and I'll maybe vote. It doesn't really matter that much. Right.
1: Well, I think the problem with that analogy, which seems accurate, but the problem with that analogy is no matter which monster wins, all of the people on the streets get trampled. All right. So if this system sucks, do we have any solutions for it? Can we be the ray of hope?
0: There are a few proposed Solutions to the idea of how to preserve freedom of speech and the ability to engage in the political process. And there are actually a couple of test cases for ways to try to equalize the ability of people to participate with money. One example is the campaign that was funded by voters in 2015, funded for 10 years in Seattle, called the Honest Election Seattle Initiative.
1: Oh, that sounds and- hopeful.
0: It does, doesn't it? Wait till you hear this part. Everybody gets
1: democracy vouchers. Oh, shoot. Okay. I want a (laughs) a democracy voucher.
0: So Every eligible voter in the Seattle system gets four $25 vouchers that they can put towards specific local campaigns.
1: I don't just get one democracy voucher. I get four democracy vouchers. You can give them all to
0: one candidate of your choosing or four separate ones or however you want to. And these these candidates have to meet certain criteria to prove that they're like legitimately participating in the elections and the process is all above board. But it's a way to limit how much money is spent in campaigns, but also allow people equal access to express their political will in the funding aspect of political campaigns.
1: In this system, as opposed to some other federally funded campaign schemes, I don't think that candidates have to give up the ability to receive other forms of external donation.
0: No, I don't think it does, but what it does do is guarantee that there is a baseline level of participation that all residents get to have whereas before there was the democracy voucher system, some people would be fully excluded from the process.
1: This is interesting if if we equate money to free speech and then this is a Governmentally funded system, which is obviously going to be based on revenue collected from tax dollars. Our tax system, redistributing wealth in this case, is also redistributing that disproportionate amount of free speech that people have. It's taking speech from the rich in these $25 amounts and handing that speech down to the poor.
0: If the poor people could not pay taxes at all, they would still get these vouchers. So yes, essentially, it would be a way to
1: crowdfund voice for some people. That's interesting. So does this then potentially help maintain free speech and protect the legitimacy of a democratic system at the same time?
0: It might. There are plenty of people who believe that a system like this just reduces the desire to get private money from super PACs or other organizations. There's enough money coming in from the voucher system then they don't have to spend all their time fundraising. It might make it easier to be a politician when a system like this exists.
1: The problem here might be that this being implemented on a in a municipal election, a citywide election in Seattle, it can work there, but I wonder how effective it would be on a federal level.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there's also an idea of eliminating any private money whatsoever and funding elections purely off of taxes, meaning that every individual who contributes taxes, probably income taxes. So people, as well as corporations would be funding elections that way and eliminating any inequity of private donors altogether, and then setting, you know, dollar amount limits for how much a campaign is able to receive from a federal fund for these types of elections. And then you've eliminated the disparity between political campaigns. And it's purely who actually has the will of the people who's going to win those elections.
1: Mm. But to argue that this isn't necessarily in defense of corporations because it's not necessarily true that they are or should be given the rights of people, regardless of what the Supreme Court says in Citizens United. But in defense of private individuals who, again, as we mentioned, make up the vast majority of donations under a system like this, what do you tell somebody that that says, I want to pay for a commercial that says Trump is awesome. It's my money. That's what I think. That's what I want to spend it on. Like, what justification do you as a government have to tell that person they can't do that?
0: We already have a basis for that. In a sense, when it comes to the equal airtime rule in that broadcasters have to offer at least the opportunity for an opposing side to get their say, if they present one side of a political issue, private commercials are a little bit different, but everything that goes into some sort of media could have an expectation of balance being involved. And I think that that's a problem of the current system is that there's no guarantee that there's equal representation of ideologies at the private funding level when we're looking at things like internet ads and television commercials and things that are not actually part of a broadcast media apparatus.
1: Right, but I think you raised both of the problems to that in in that answer. Uh, One being under the equal airtime rule that's given to candidates, right? So this, this actually might justify, we were asking earlier, how do you have a decision like Buckley versus Vallejo that seems to put arbitrary restrictions in one place but not in another? Um, the equal airtime rule gives candidates an equal opportunity, but doesn't say or mandate for external entities who want to put up a commercial that says whatever it is they want it to say. If I wanted to, if I wanted to, if I paid enough money, I could run a Super Bowl commercial that was just. My cat is awesome. Here's 10 minutes of my cat doing crazy things. Ooh, 10 minutes Super Bowl commercial will be real expensive. There's so
0: much money. (laughs) Here's
1: here's 30 seconds. Also, my cat just doesn't do that many awesome things. I think I've got a good 30 seconds. Here's 30 seconds of my cat (laughs) doing awesome things, right? I can do that. And there's no restriction on it. The the idea of equal airtime might deal with the candidates speaking themselves, but it doesn't deal with independent expenditures, which is where, as we've pointed out, Kelly's at $20, independent contributions, $2,900, a pack is $5,000, and super PACs are $2 billion. So it doesn't solve that problem. And then the other, the other issue here is giving candidates an opportunity to get as much airtime. If they can't afford that airtime, can they necessarily take advantage of the opportunity, whether it's offered or not?
0: well that's why if you equalize it so it's only funded by the same amount for each candidate out of a federal pool then nobody can just willy-nilly go and outspend one another to try to get airtime it would be an idea to strategically place yourself at you know certain Times of day with certain demographics, but you wouldn't have as much money as you would under a private funding structure to do like birdshot attempt at getting as much media coverage as possible.
1: Mm. But I think the downside here though is we have to pay for it. And anybody that's listened to probably any of the episodes we've done, maybe we didn't talk about it in like the zoo episode, but they know that. Probably neither of us are a big fan of either of the presidential candidates in the last election. So I don't want my money going to either one.
0: However, a system like this gives better opportunities for third party candidates to actually participate as well,
1: because they would be eligible for the
0: same amount of funding as the two dominant parties would.
1: Mm -hmm. That's true. So, but third parties aside, here's kind of the point I'm getting at is here's a system where I would have to donate for these people to be able to spew their bullshit. During the election. But if you look at the current system, again, let's think about what we said in 2012, where Obama ended up with 985 million and Romney ended up with 992 million. That's pretty even also. And I didn't have to pay any money for them to have these even amounts of expenditures.
0: If your objection to this is that we would have to pay for it, you know what I'm going to say, right?
1: Tax Chef Bezos. Or (laughs) what's oh there's another one. Let's hear it.
0: Defund the military.
1: Oh, there I should have known. I should have known. (laughs) I think that it's telling that our solutions do fall into the same conundrum of do we prioritize an individual or association of individuals right to free speech, or do we prioritize the legitimacy of our democratic system? It, It seems like that is the dichotomy around which all of these policies and supreme court decisions etc have to wrestle with
0: at the end of all of this i think i'm undecided about how things could actually improve i recognize that there probably is way too much corporate money and private interests in politics i don't see a reasonable way to limit them without the potential of infringing upon people's right to ha- express themselves and some people do need to use money to express themselves because other means have been cut off to them. So at the end of this, I don't think there is a perfect answer not to pander to our wonderful listeners. I would really like to hear any ideas people have for how to meet the interests of everybody involved and ensure that democracy is improved upon, if not just preserved at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. If, if any of our listeners have the solution to this issue, we will bring you on our next episode as a guest because you deserve to have your voice heard, whether you can pay for it or not, because I'm not really sure that I have an answer here either. I definitely am comfortable saying that Citizens United was a mistake in, in this particular instance, especially the idea that an association of individuals should be able to exercise a singular individual's right seems like double taxation in reverse. Uh, Any individual in a corporation has the ability to exercise free speech as an individual. They don't have to do it again as a corporation. So I don't buy that. But that being arguably only 5% of these expenditures that we're talking about, even solving that problem doesn't solve this overall issue. I I tend to lean towards the protection of democracy over the exercising of free speech because without a functioning democratic system none of our rights can be guaranteed right we we need this infrastructure to be pure in order for all of the other rights that we've been granted to be guaranteed but on the flip side there's a reason that free speech is the first amendment because if we can't talk and we can't share ideas, how do we effectively make decisions inside of a democracy? So I think that catch-22 is what makes this decision so hard. But if I had to choose, I think that there is a balance where when people are able to donate $2,900, for example, as the limit towards campaign committees is set at, that seems to me a pretty reasonable spot to where you get a whole bunch of speech getting out there, and you get to express yourself with anybody who's willing to listen, as well as a little bit of your pocketbook without reaching these obscene numbers, 188 million, 2 billion that we talk about when we we discuss super PACs. So I think I would be comfortable with caps to contributions in the thousands. (laughs) Well, hopefully we have not crushed too much faith in our democratic system throughout this episode. We do promise next week that we'll have a topic for you that's a bit more lighthearted we're going to be talking next week about stand-up comedy yeah how far is too far when it comes to making jokes and if you go too far do you deserve to have the shit slapped out of you interesting and timely question (laughs) all right so um if if you make it through the week after listening to this we hope you'll join us again next week we promise it'll be more uplifting until then take care and thanks for listening
0: see ya